mind is young My body lean I live in Petrograd The year is 1917 I see the horses in the street I hear the sound of running feet I see the torches burning bright Marching out into the night I turn my horse towards the sun They say the movement has begun When every man shall own his share An end to sorrow and despair And now they say the Tsar's gone I turned my horse towards the sun Though I am tired I must ride on To find the peace I know I want The Caucasus and the Ukraine Across the land and back again Then down the seaboard we will ride Unopposed and undefined We turn our horses to the sun They say the movement has begun When every man shall own his share An end to sorrow and despair And now they say the Tsar's gone Turned our horses to the sun And the dancers danced Palalakas played As the people watched the Grand Parade And as the peasants watched they knew What the community could do When they saw what had been won And what the Soviet had done They turn their horses to the sun They say the movement has begun When every man shall own his share An end to sorrow and despair And now they say the Tsar's gone I turn my horse towards the sun
Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Bo, a 1917 revolution. I've got Bo, a.k.a. Trevor Midgley here on the Strange Brew because we've got a very special show today talking about John Peel's Dandelion Records, brilliant label from, um, I think, 69 to 72 that uh, John set up. And through that, we also get to hear... Trevor's story in music and we'll also be getting a bit of a taster of his new album at the very close of the show. Welcome Trevor. Thank you kindly, I'm really sorry I can't be with you there in person but circumstances are as they are. Very understandable. So I write the um, 1917 revolution, the single was Dandelion Records first actual release. Yeah, uh, it was. The very the very first one came out, actually 18th of July 69, that was the uh, the very first date that there were four singles. Four singles came out on that date. Uh, mine was the first. Uh, Bridget and John was the second. And then a month or so later, the the first albums came out. And Bridget's was the first album, and mine was the second one. But yeah, nineteen seventeen revolution, the very first one, eighteenth of July sixty nine. And Clive Selwood of Electra Records was at the heart of Dandelion Records alongside John Peel. I understand, and it was through. Clive and kind of Electra that you got onto Dandelion Records? Very much. I mean, going way back to the start, I, I mean, right the way through the early part of the 60s, I'd been playing with a band in Leeds called The Raiders. 1965 it was, and two sort of major things happened in 65. One was that I first came across uh, Tom Paxton, uh, who I, I really liked his uh, sort of, he was gently political, but he was political uh, and folky. Mm. That was one thing. And another thing that happened in in '65, and I honestly can't remember which came first, which was the chicken, which was the egg. But at uh, W. H. Smith's in Leeds, I bought an album called Lead Belly Sings and Plays. But those two things, uh, Lead Belly and Tom Paxton, sort of started me on a totally different trajectory to the to the sort of the pop rock stuff that I've been doing with the Raiders over the last few years. And that was what really started me on the folk uh, style. That was what started me on the 12-string style. But most importantly, led me on, because Paxton was on Electra, to other people on Electra. Ah. And the, the other interesting thing that comes out of that over the next couple of years, I realized, of course, that Jack Holtzman, who was the owner of Electra in the States, also had a... Um, uh, a box set called Lead Belly's Library of Congress Recordings. So I bought that and a couple of other, well, many other things from Electra. The point being that 12-string folk and Electra all sort of meshed in my mind as being something that was worth my while pursuing. So later on, when I got around to um, to writing a lot and to playing a lot, they were the first company that I thought, well, I really would like to try and get in with Electra. So I dropped a note to Clive Selwood, sent him a, a demo tape of four songs, and uh, he came back to me. And that was where the whole thing began. Now, the story of how Dandelion came from that is an intriguing one. But having said that, it was Electra that was the uh, the catalyst for the whole thing. And the single was uh, well received at the time, wasn't it? Very well, um, extremely well. We did we did very well in, in 
this country. We did nicely in uh, in Holland. I mean, the best thing about it was, and I think it rather surprised Dandelion, was that um, it did actually go to number one. It was the only, <laughs> there were two records on Dandelion that ever made the charts. One was Medicine Head's Pictures in the Sky, but the other one was the, the very first release on it, 1917 Revolution, that went to number one. Sadly, only in the Lebanon, but nevertheless, you uh, you take these small mercies when they come. Clive Selwood always uh, always thought that was that was going to be the start of something big, but it turned out uh, it wasn't exactly as they would have liked. But it was a very a very nice start. It was a good start, and as you say, it was a well received record. It was a good record, I think. One of the things that's known for 1917 Revolution is that it was behind the inspiration for America's massive song, A Horse with No Name. Can yes. you tell me about that? Yeah, that. That that shocked me when I heard it, but it was one of the one of the guys in the band. I read I read the, the, there was a magazine article, and uh, he said that the the inspiration for for a horse with no name, Bose nineteen seventeen revolution, and I thought this is ridiculous. I mean, first of all, nineteen seventeen revolution was never released in the states, um, and the reason for that, so I was told later on was this was the time of uh, Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater, uh, the Republican um, senator for Arizona, was a very, very powerful and a very, very right wing hawk in the States at the time. And it was thought that in 1969, releasing something which, depending on how he sold it, uh, purported to praise the Russian Revolution, um, the Bolshevik Revolution, might not go down too well in America. So that was the reason, so I was later told, that the, the 1917 revolution, good record though they thought it was, didn't get out in the States. When America, the band, say that um, this has been their inspiration for uh, A Horse With No Name, I thought, well, that, that's ridiculous because it doesn't, it doesn't hang up. It doesn't even sound like it apart from certain rundown chords. But when I actually check it out, of course, those guys in the band, they weren't in America, they weren't in the United States at the time. They were all the sons of American servicemen serving in the UK at the time. So, in fact, they picked up the song in the UK and then subsequently, so the word goes, they used it as their inspiration for A Horse With No Name, which obviously came out later when they were America in the US of A. But they didn't actually pick it up in the USA. They picked it up here when their dads were in the in the forces. So as impetus to record your debut album. Yeah. It, it, yes and no. The interesting thing was that when I, when I did submit my original uh, demo tape to Clive at, uh, at Electra, I went down to the test for Electra, um, which 22 songs we put down. These were put to uh, these were put to Jack Holtzman in the States. Now, the thing was that I didn't realize it at the time, but Jack had sort of gone past the folk stage at that time because this was in late 68. So he was onto things like The Doors and Love and Clear Lights and all of that sort of, uh, that, that sort of uh, setup and those sort of bands. So he'd really gone past the uh, the Tom Paxton, the Phil Oaks, the Judy Collins type of music. Sadly, I got turned down for Electra. But the thing was that then Clive came back and said that he and John were starting this label called Dandelion, and would I like to record an album for them? Now, that was 
pretty unheard of in the day because normally, as you say, you have a situation where uh, you do a single. Uh, if that did okay, mm, you might get another single. If that did okay, ooh, let's say possibly an EP. They actually came to me at the start and said, do you want to do an album? And so I said, yes. <laughs> and from that came 1917 Revolution, which was just one of the tracks that we that we put down for the, the first Bow album. But the, I think the reason he came to that decision, or he and John came to that decision for the album to start with, was because, as I say, when I'd been and done the, the audition for Electra, and I wish I could still get hold of those tapes, by the way, I have no idea where they are, uh, but we did 22 songs then, just bang, 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 bang straight off so at least he knew the material was there and they knew what the material was so we actually did start out with the album concept before the single which for that time 1968 stroke nine was pretty good going so then it was bridget st john so hers you were saying before hers was the first album yeah yeah i mean bridget's uh, asking no questions was the first the first album but um we, I mean, they were all being recorded, obviously, roughly around the same time. Wonderful, a wonderful um, studio engineer, CBS studio engineer called Mike Ross. Uh, Mike was, was brilliant, very good to work with. Now, I believe he's still working, actually. But Bridget, uh, when, she was, um, when she was in the studio, um, I was there during a fair bit of the recording of, uh, of some of the tracks for her Ask Me No Questions album, because when I went in and did my... Uh, the major recording for my album. Mm. I went in it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. The Who had been in there entirely overnight beforehand. And they'd been, they'd been doing a very long, very hard, and I have to say, reasonably trashing session. And poor old Mike Ross was still busy tidying the studio and getting everything ready when I got there because they'd had quite a night of it. So I did my day. And then whilst I was sort of packing up and sort of getting everything sorted out at the end of the day, Bridget came in with John Martin and people like that, and they started work on theirs. And one of the things that um, they recorded whilst, whilst I was there and whilst I was listening to it and them doing it was the, the title track from Bridget's album, uh, which, as it was going to be, which was called Ask Me No Questions. Is that bird song taped over it I could, I could hear? Um, yeah, they, they, always, <laughs> they always said that that bird song had been... Um, recorded sort of remotely I, I've personally speaking no no means of knowing this I think it was very probably um, a file tape but at the time they were saying um, this 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 was actually recorded especially for the uh, for the tag onto onto ask me no questions whether it was or not I don't know Give you a 
she saw It's just for you Keep this a secret Make me a promise that you will I'll make one too Close your eyes, my love Close your eyes, gently Come Ask me no questions Tell me no lies if you
Next we have Stack Waddy and uh, a, a change of sound really with Roadrunner. And uh, one of the aspects of Dandelion was that you know the many different styles of the label. Do you think that that highlighted the the various musical interests of John? Yeah. I mean, it, it was totally eclectic. But one of the one of the principles that, that both John and Clive were working to was the Electra principle. I mean, John John had been very very strong in his um, support of Electra on his Perfume Garden show and on his uh, Top Gear, the whole lot. John had always been supportive, not just of the label per se, but because uh, but of the of the the nature and the diversity of the label. And so it was a, a bit of a natural follow-on that because John had been so supportive of it and because Clive was the manager of Electra in the UK, that Dandelion was going to, to some degree, mirror what Jack Holtzman had done in the States, mirror it on this side and this side of the pond. So, that I mean, that was the the principle was there to start with. It was not going to be um, a folk label. It was not going to be a rock label. It was not going to be a jazz label. It was going to be an eclectic label. So you've got people... Like me, yes, and like and like Bridget, but as you say, you have Stack Waddy. Now, I mean, Stack Waddy were an intriguing bunch, and I mean, I the second <laughs> the second session that I did for um, for the Bow album um, when I'd finished mine, and what we were doing then uh, was some tie-ups. Um, we did another version of 1917 Revolution, which was a supposedly shorter. They had the idea of doing this for a, a single. In fact, it didn't work out, which is why eventually the full, the full uh, four minutes seventeen or whatever it was, came out. And we'd been doing another, uh, another couple of things. But I was packing up, and Stack Woody came in, and they did, and started work on this. I have never heard noise. Like it. I mean, I, I like rock. I mean, God's sake, I like rock music. I like heavy music. I, I, I love metal music and all that. This band were loud. They were raucous. Believe you me. And in fact, Roadrunner, which was the uh, the single that came out from the um, the, the stack the first Stackwaddy album. I mean, they, they they did that while I was there, and at least they did a take of it. And believe you me, I mean, it was shattering as far as volume is concerned. But uh, I like those guys. I mean, I, I, I like them, but I came out with my head ringing. They're from Manchester, and they had a bit of a... They seem to have a bit of a sort of reputation for drinking and, and being wild. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were... I mean, in, in fairness, they possibly weren't as, weren't as wild or as, um, uh, or as cantankerous as they're made out to be. But then, OK, publicity is what it is. But, uh, yeah, they were. I mean, they were, they were a, a rough pub band... They were very much take, uh, take us as you see us. They would play as loud, as long um, as they as they wanted to. They were the type of band that, if they didn't want to stop, you had to pull the plugs out to stop them. You know, I mean, they did they did what they wanted to do, and that was one of the things that really appealed to Peely um, about them that they 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 were this sort of anarchic rock. They were anarchic rock. They weren't avant garde or anything like that. They were just hard hard. John Nail. They were hard-nailed rock and rollers. Mm. Really, really hard rock.
we take another shift. I've read that it was actually Bill Oddie's performance on TV of Oakley Morbatat that got him linked up to the label. Have you heard that before? I've heard that. I've heard that. Um, I don't know it, but it, it, it's it's probably true. But again, I mean, it gives the... He, it's the interesting thing about Dandelion. I mean, it was so diverse. Uh, I mean, you, you, you went from people, as we've just said, like, you know, uh, stack worthy and the softer side like like myself you go you go on later on to uh, the way we live people like that and then you got this this really weird spoof record that comes out from bill oddy on, on il clamour bartat which obviously was a spoof of with a little help from my friends um uh not the beatles version obviously but a spoof of, of the joe cocker version but i mean the, the, because john was who he was he could he could get hold of people who would just simply say, yes, I will do it. So Bill Oddie, yes, but people like Henry McCulloch, who did the lead guitar work on Oilclimb uh, on Mobile Tat, these sort of people would come in, they would help, and they would contribute towards the label. Because I think genuinely they realised that the Dandelion label was trying to do something on this side of the pond that wasn't really hadn't been done before. I don't know if you know about this, but... Um, it was always said, and I think it was said by, by Richard Branson himself, that, that Branson based the concepts of um, the Virgin label, which I think started in 73, stand to be corrected, but I think it was in 73. He based that on Dandelion. Now, in fairness, he, he sort of broke particularly lucky with Mike Oldfield. But, but, and unfortunately, Dandelion didn't, didn't have that sort of success, which obviously laid entirely the foundations for the Virgin label. But I think that... Um, I think that Richard Branson has actually said quite publicly that Dandelion was the, if you like, the template for his uh, his work and his launching of the Virgin label. That means that sort of, it's that sort of eclecticness, if that's a word, um, that, that that appealed and that, of course, produced Virgin with its very very wide roster of artists. So Henry McCulloch, he he played with um, with Bill Oddie. He I think he he actually played on the. Did he play on the original? Joe, the Joe Cocker record, or was because he was in the Grease Band. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> so he he played on the original, and, and then and he, he played, played on, on the spoof. spoof. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And I mean, in fairness, that uh, that that Bill Oddie track is, is is it's a great little piece of work if you listen to it. The trouble is, of course, you tend to think of it just purely as a spoof, but actually, as a rock piece. Granted, of course, it is. It's a, a copy of the um, of the, the Cocker original, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a really nice piece of record. It's a nice piece of rock. Where has there been since I saw thee 
we're still in 1970 here and we have Mike Hart and almost Liverpool 8. Mike had been with Liverpool scene um, which obviously they were a very well known outfit that came out of Liverpool most things that came out of Liverpool were very popular then for the the obvious connections but the interesting thing about about Mike Hart or because it's actually directly connected to me in a way after my first album had come out um and it did okay, it did, it did pretty good. But then Clive got in touch with me and said, got an idea that we'd like to sort of vary the second album a bit, um, perhaps bring in a little bit of, and his, his words at the time were a bit, a bit of subtle backing. So, okay, fair enough, okay, no problem. This was on the phone. So he said, I've got this guy, he's from Liverpool, and uh, we've, we've put down a, a, a few tracks of his, I'd like you to listen to them because this is the sort of thing that I, I've got in mind. So, okay, fair enough. And Clive sent me up a, a reel-to-reel tape of what turned out to be um, Mike Hart Bleeds, the, the Mike Hart album. It was a rough mix and it wasn't uh, sequenced in the way that the, the album is now. 
but it was just a, a reel-to-reel tape. So I'm listening to that. I thought, yeah, yeah, that's 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 good. That's a nice that's a nice overall sound. And uh, one track that that particularly did appeal to me was uh, a thing called Almost Liverpool Eight, uh, which was even in a rough state on on that tape. Really, to me, did did stand out. But anyway, the point being, um, from that I said I said to Clive, yeah, look, I mean, I'm I'm more than happy. Um, let's go ahead with that. Now, we didn't go ahead with working with Mike Hart on that. That was really just an example of perhaps how a sound might develop. But the one thing that has always stuck with me, and I think is a really great record, which came from uh, Mike Hart Bleeds, is the, uh, the 1970 release of Almost Liverpool 8. Don't know what it means, girl 
just say that thing in bed who you've got quite a lot of interconnections with. At that point, they were known as The Way We Live, later Tractor, and this is uh, King Dick II? Exactly that. Well, going back to the, again to the Mike Hart story, Mike Hart Bleeds came out, and that was all very good. Uh, Clive came to me and said, you know, we're talking about a bit of subtle backing. Said, yeah, fine, absolutely. He said, well, I've got this new... This new band that uh, we've signed over in Rochdale in Lancashire, which isn't too far away from you, said he, him being from the south, not realizing that there's a pennant in the middle, you know, but anyway. So that's a bit, yeah, okay, Rochdale isn't, isn't too far. Um, he said, I'd like you to get together with them. He said, they are, they're, they're heavy, they're, they're a heavy band, but I think they've got a little bit of subtlety about them that possibly might, might work. So, Anyway, get in touch, have a word, go over, have a jam, see how it works out. So, great. So I go over to um, John Bright. The, the, the band at that point, the way we live, as you say, it was it was uh, Jim Milne, guitars, bass, the whole shebang, uh, Steve Clayton on drums, and John Briley, who was their producer and uh, their, their effects whiz. And John had got his own home studio in a house on Edenfield Road in, in Rochdale. Anyway, I toddled on over there. and We, we had a, a really good get-together. I mean, the, the thing that probably to remember at the time, I think Jim's said to me since then that they were a bit nervous of me because I'd already sort of got an album out with Dandelion and they hadn't yet got their their first album, which was later to come out. They, they hadn't got that sort of sorted out. They hadn't even been into the studio in London. They'd just sort of got the, the basic tapes that had been made at, um, at John Briley's setup. So we did some jamming. And it was really interesting because although they are a heavy band and they were a heavy sort of prog band from the time, because of the nature, because of Steve's nature of, of being quite a, a subtle arranging and, and thinking guy and Jim's ability not just to play rock electric guitar but also a pretty decent acoustic player also he's a good writer also he's a good vocal harmonist it worked 
And we actually had a really good time. So the, the upshot of all of this eventually was, of course, that the way we live as they then were uh, turned up as the backing on several tracks on my second album, Creation. But a really superb track from the first album, uh, From the Way We Live, the album was called A Candle for Judith. Judith, by the way, was then Steve's girlfriend, is now Steve's wife. But um, the, a really superb track from that is King Dick II, It Ain't Folk. We talked earlier that you had one of the hit singles for Dandelion and we have a huge hit single here in the UK mm. and a band that um, got lasting long longevity and Medicine Head 
and their hit single, And the Pictures in the Sky. Yeah, I loved Mendes and Ed from the first time that I heard them. And I, I never saw them in the studio because uh, they were sort of later on. But I mean, they, they brought out that first, the first album called New Bottles, Old Medicine. And I thought it was really, really original because you've got Peter Hope Evans with his Jaws harp and you've got in the, the almost one-man band aspect of John Fiddler with his bass, drum and, and the guitar and the vocals, the whole thing. They were a very, very unusual sound. And point you make, they had this the other hit, which was a hit in this country, which Dandelion was very, very pleased about, um, with uh, Pictures in the Sky. Now, that, that did sell well all over the world. It's still, it's still a, a well-recognized, very well-regarded track. And Medicine Head still have a very, very large following. But I, I just, I, I always loved, particularly that first album called New Bottles, Old Medicine. But it's another aspect of how different Dandelion could be in bouncing between different genres. They were different. I mean, they were, particularly with, with uh, Mr. Fiddler, I mean, they, they, were, they were, he was more of a one-man band, you know. I mean, he was a one-man band. So he and Peter worked very, very well together. I did, um, we were in, uh, in Amsterdam doing a, a promotion thing for Dandelion at the Paradiso in Amsterdam, and there was myself and there was Bridget and, and, and Medhead. With that, and it, it was a it was a weird experience, but it, it was thoroughly enjoyable. And just being there with them playing live, it was a really interesting experience. But pictures in the sky, obviously, that's the one that everybody remembers. And I recall that John Peel may be credited as a producer on that debut Medicine Head album, but generally speaking, I understand he he kind of left artists on on the label to basically plough their own furrow. Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it 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 is one of the. Oh, no, it's not a criticism, it, but it is something that has been said over time that probably we were given a little bit too much license. As I say, genuinely, it's not a criticism, but most of us were going into a major studio for the first time, and perhaps it might have been a little bit better. In some cases, had there been a little bit more uh, direct input from people who who had a lot more knowledge and experience of studios than we had at the time. Having said that, I think the test of, well, the test over time has been the quality of the records and the way in which the Dandelion label is still remembered. So I think I'm, I'm nitpicking, but having said that, yes, we were given a heck of a lot of freedom. When, when I did my second album, Creation, we did it at um, Hollick and Taylor's studio in Birmingham. Uh, it was entirely just John Briley, Jim Milne, Steve Clayton, and, and my good self. That was it. We, we recorded it. We produced it. We did the whole, the whole shebang. And then the tape went off to Clive. So, I mean, the, the, the freedom was there. Whether or not the freedom was completely justified by our experience... Time will tell. Time has told.
started out to travel across this land And the stars were my charts, the birds were my rock and roll band The roads they weren't long and my heart felt a new sweet song And the sun just held my love along And the pictures in the sky Help my soul get high talk about that freedom uh, Kevin Coyne Sandal Yellow stunning track and uh, that album and I'm assuming that track was in part inspired by his earlier work in a psychiatric hospital yeah the interesting thing about about the, the Kevin work there's many interesting things he did some tremendous stuff both at Gandelion and afterwards but Kevin was a, he was a natural in in that he very expressive he was a guy from Derby, uh, lovely chap. The, the intriguing thing about about Kevin Coyne's Standard Yellow is that it was entirely improvised, both in terms of the uh, the guitar, the music, the voice, the voices, and the the concepts and everything. It wasn't called Sandor Yellow until the end because that was just simply words that he cho- he chose to use. And it is it is intriguing. Somebody once asked me, I tell you one thing: you should never ever do. Somebody asks you a question, you should never give them an off the top answer because if you do that, you're going to live to regret it. But somebody once asked me, said, you know, what what was the the, the best album that Dandelion produced? If I'd have been American, I said, well, Bo, obviously, you know, I'm not American. So I, I said, um, hmm, I, I think it's Kevin's Kevin's case history. And uh, this journal said, oh, that's interesting. And what, 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 what do you think is the best track on that? And I said, I think Sandal Yellow. And I don't regret it, except that I regret perhaps having just, because there, there were many really, really good tracks, great stuff that, that Dandelion did. Don't regret it. But he, I suppose you should never do it. But it's, it, it, it is such a good track, such a beautiful track, so well presented, and as I say, totally improvised. And after Dandelion, Kevin, we were talking about Virgin earlier and a little bit of Fred, he, Kevin joined the fledging Virgin Records? Yeah, he did. And I mean, the, 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 there was, some, there was an, an element of continuity there. Marjorie Razorblade, of course, was, was a, a, very, a very good album. But I, I mean, overall, when, when Dandelion 
when Dandelion folded in 1972, uh, obviously everybody was left without any uh, any contract. Um, no contracts, no contacts, pretty well. And people had to start start looking around if they were going to pursue the the, the, the career that had, had, in a fledgling way, had got underway. I mean, from my point of view, there's another story to it because uh, I had other um, other fish to fry. But people like, for example, as you say, Kevin, immediately had to start looking around. And, of course, as you say, he ended up with the, the, the fledgling um, virgin outfit. One thing, though, that it's sort of just going back a tiny bit. As I said, virgin got very fortunate Um Oh, fortunate. Yeah, fortunate with Mike Oldfield because the Mike Oldfield um, tubular bells absolutely blew the world apart and, of course, did everything and everything and everything that Richard Branson could have ever have asked to um, to give his Virgin label a start. If we just go back a couple of years before Virgin, um, and you do know that Dandelion turned down Roxy Music. <laughs> Seriously? Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was the, this was the problem, a problem. I mean... Dandelion didn't put many feet wrong, but that was one. And in, in 71, um, they, they were offered Roxy. And uh, I believe, actually, the, the first, there were some demos done um, and turned them down. Now, in fairness, and I think Clive has, has always sort of felt that probably Dandelion wouldn't have had the, uh, the marketing muscle to do for Roxy Music what Ireland was eventually able to do. Uh, so I think that in, in, in one sense, that might have been fair to Roxy Music in the light of the way things have turned out. But, yeah, I mean, turning down Roxy Music was probably a little problem. And if this is a big if, but if Dandy had actually taken Roxy Music in 71 and come out with that first Roxy Music album with a bit of promo, Dandelion just might have had the Virgin Tubular Bells. They might have had. You can never tell, but that's history. It's just the way that it worked. And as I say, of course, Roxy Music went to uh, went to Ireland. Some more. 
music in that in that parallel universe we were discussing there's artists such as Clifford T. Ward who later went on to 
commercial success. Yeah. And uh, you've chosen Coat Hanger from his Dandelion single. It was a single that came out from Singer Songwriter. Was Coat Hanger released around the period when Dandelion was in trouble? Yes. Coat Hanger, 99% of the time on, on Dandelion, or for the number of artists there were, John was the... Um, was the man who decided the the artistic content that that was the way it worked it was it was clive dealt with all of the business clive and and, and shirley Selwood, his his lovely lovely wife they dealt with it. clive and shirley dealt with the business side of it john primarily dealt with the artistic side that isn't to say clive didn't produce he did but the actual selection of artists 90 90 well, percent of the time was peely thing about Clifford T. Ward, Cliff was not really John's sort of music. He was more Clive's. And Clifford T. Ward was a Clive inspiration for the album, for the for the label. He was the one that wanted Clifford, and Clifford did the job of putting out Coat Hanger. It wasn't John's, um, it wasn't John's input. Now Clifford T. Ward Coat Hanger did really nicely. It, it, it provided a decent sale, well, and as, as indeed did the, the singer-songwriter album, it provided decent sale. And as you say, when Dandelion was getting into a bit of trouble, it provided a little bit of a cushion, a little bit of a pillow, a little bit of a, a, a bolster, um, because it was more overtly commercial than perhaps the rest of us on Dandelion had been. And, but that was more that was more Clive's input because obviously the label had to be had to had to survive and they were trying to keep it surviving and just going that little bit further along the line of what you would call commerciality. If you care to equate that to something like Electra, you'd be talking. What would you be saying? You'd be saying bread mm. or something like that. Where I mean, Jack Holzman when he when he uh, was moving along down the line with uh, with Electra. I mean, bread is not the sort of thing that not the sort of band that Electra would have released in earlier days. But it was just getting a little bit more MOR because it, it it had a little bit of sales potential, and that was really how Clifford T. Ward came to Dandelion. It was more Clive than it was John. It was well, it was entirely Clive actually. But Coatan was a uh, it's a really fine single and it's a really fine album. He's singer songwriter, but. I say it was slightly moving away from the original Dandelion concept. If you share my coat anger, then I'll be hung on your If you try to break my neck with thrill, just you wait till it gets dark The time will soon go by I'll Try to come so quickly lest you die But now the situation's getting out of hand I'm not sure I want to be buried in the sand but if I try to disassociate from you There's something I could do To get across to you I've got just one more move To make you sit right up and see I'll end myself upon your cherry tree But if you share my coat anger Then I'll be hung on you 
Covering that end of the Dandelion era, started work on your third album with The Way We Live. One of those songs that only got released about a decade ago but was recorded in about 1972 was St. Elizabeth of Hungary. Yeah, yeah. When Dandelion folded, we were actually in the middle of recording my third album uh, for Dandelion. And we were, we were working it all through, as I said, at uh, the, the, the studio in Edenfield Road in Rochdale, John Briley's studio. And we put down several tracks, which we were very happy with, um, sent them off to Clive. Clive said, yeah, yeah, very good, very good, very nice. And then, of course, we got the, uh, the rather unfortunate word that mm, Fred Dandelions had to, had to shut its doors because uh, we just haven't been able to sustain the sales. Fine. But we were left with this third album which we were working with now one of the songs that um that i that i'd already worked on and that we had worked on with tractor as they then were the way we live as they had been was this song called uh, saint elizabeth of hungary really nice piece that that it would have fitted beautifully in the third album but the third album never ever came about and as you rightly say it was only in uh 2009 uh, i put out an album um, on the Angel Air label called Edge of the Dark and that contained a whole load of stuff from that third album and some lot of stuff that I'd done after that. It was a, a, a compilation mix, the, the album on Angel Air. Uh, but that was, uh, that was the time that St. Elizabeth of Hungary actually got its official release. But St. Elizabeth of Hungary was originally uh, recorded in, back in the 72. When the narrow streets were ringing With the crying of the poor As the frozen fist of famine Hammered hard on every door From the chateau on the hill And down across the valley floor Came the hand and the heart Of the lady She carried from the bakery of the castle on the hill An apron full of new-made loaves For goodness to fulfill 
Against her husband's hard command She took the manner still And gave it with the heart of a lady Again and yet again she came The sun-fueled earth to cross Carrying the bread of life To life so nearly lost Until the hour her husband made her realize the cost Of giving with the heart of a lady My lady, tell me what is this your apron doth conceal She shook her head, but still he pressed Pray tell me if you will So should she lie or yet allow the truth to be revealed I have roses, my lord, lied the lady So show me, madam, I must see these roses which you hide For I believe you carry bread and I believe you lied Saying so, he tore her apron down the left-hand side And crimson roses fell upon the highway So show me, madam, I must see these roses which you hide For I believe you carry bread, and I believe you lied Saying so, he tore her apron down the left-hand side And crimson roses fell upon the highway So after Dandelion folded, so... What did you do then? Were you actually st- working at the same time, or, or were you playing in folk clubs? Uh, both. Um, as it just so happened, I, I, I worked for the, the Halifax in, uh, in Leeds. And just at the time, and I mean this literally within about three or four weeks of Dandelion Folding, I got a very substantial promotion at work. And the question then came, um, ooh, what am I going to do? Do I pursue my commercial career or do I pursue my musical career? And because Dandelion had, had gone, in a sense, the decision was made for me. So, yes, I continued, uh, I continued on, my, on my career in the, uh, in, the commercials, in the commercial world, but I did continue to play in folk clubs. Sometimes, however, and I, I don't know whether you're aware of this, you probably are, but uh, yes, my, my 1917 revolution was the very first record on, on Dandelion. A track that I recorded, which was called Skydance, I recorded under the name of John Trevor, and that was on the very last release that Dandelion ever had, which was uh, a sampler. Dandelion always did things the wrong way around. You know, you put out the sampler as your very last record. Um, it was a sample called There's Some Fun Going Forward. So I recorded this song Skydance. It came out on Fun Going Forward, but I was under the name of John Trevor. So when uh, I got another promotion, and we moved to live uh, in, in the Peak District of Derbyshire. And I was doing some uh, folk 
singing just just around some of the clubs there just not as beau but as john trevor and uh one one night i were there's the white swan the white swan at uh, drumfield i remember and i'd been doing the set and um roy bailey the superb folk singer was 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 in the place i'd done this song which was called uh, the roses of eam and for People listening who don't know Eam, E-Y-A-M, is a, it's a village in Derbyshire, and in um, in the mid 1600s, time of the of the of the Great Plague, um, this village famously had the uh, the plague brought to it. Actually, in in case of clothes from London, which was uh, to be worked on by the the village tailor. Uh, unfortunately, the fleas and everything were imported, and the plague started up in Eam. And in order to protect the village, or rather protect the surroundings, the village isolated itself and, well, with very tragic consequences for the village. But in fact, it was a heroic act that saved probably many hundreds of people from the, the surrounding area. I tell you that now because Roy Bailey was in at the White Swan that night and he heard me sing this song, The Roses of Eam. And he said to me afterwards, look, you know, I'd really like to sing that. So I said, no problem, no prop. So I sent him a tape. He didn't know me as Bo, he knew me as John Trevor, actually. Yeah. So I, 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 I sent him a tape of it. And that, as far as I was concerned, that was it. Uh, I didn't really hear any more. Uh, oh, it must have been a couple of years later. I was just going through some record raps. And funnily enough, Bailey is quite close to Bo. Yeah, uh, it's just mm -hmm. the way it is. And I was looking through some, some record, record raps. And there was Bo there, and I'm fine, my stuff's in. Um, and then I had a look, there's Roy Bailey behind, and there's this album called Hard Times. And I picked it up, and there on the back, it says, there is Roses of Beam by John, written by John Trevor. So I thought, wow, you know, very good. So uh, Roy, well, sadly now departed, but Roy, I bought your album, and you did a really, really nice version of, uh, of the Roses of Beam. And this is an interesting point, because... Everybody around the world, Royce, Royce sang this in Australia, sang it in Canada, he sang it all over the place, folk festival, all over the shop. Everybody thinks it's a Roy Billy song. It's not, it's a John Trevor song, it's a Bow song. And originally, well, it was on his uh, on his Hard Times LP, but uh, Roy Billy, The Roses of Eam, that's what everybody thinks of. The earth beneath the surface dust Is cold and damp and raw And holding but the memory Of what has gone before Can almost be forgiven For remembering the dream Of the wall of stones around the homes Of the villagers of Eam the villagers of him in August 1665 along the cobbled roads between the houses dark and high the carriers with their loads were leaving for the northern towns the capital and crown and also leaving far behind the plague of London town 
The plague of London town George Vickers was the tailor To the village life of Veen And to his house a case of clothes From London town was seen To be delivered one fine day In September 65 And never more was Taylor Vickers Ever seen alive Ever seen alive The scars upon his face and chest Were many to behold And lying by his fevered body Now so very cold The case from London open wide The clothes all neatly hung And from the bell upon the church The knell of death was rung The knell of death was rung Followed sixty scarred and bleeding Buried in their grave And Thomas Stanley stood above And told them Jesus saved But Stanley was a Puritan An enemy to heed To Mompess on the Anglican Who held the rector's creed Who held the rector's creed The differences between these men Which were so very wide Were shattered by their desperate need And rudely cast aside The voices of these two were joined Their words were not in vain They told the villagers of Eam The plague must be contained The plague must be contained The village people took their word And agreed to stay and die They built a wall around the hamlet Not so very high But high enough so they would know That though it mean their lives The plague must stay behind the wall With children, friends and wives With children, friends and wives For six long months the wall did stand And honest to their word The families died The frists and the siddles never more were heard The Thornleys, Hancocks and the Tors were buried in the ground The Coopers and the Vickers never made another sound Never made another sound The dawn that rang the final bell Left thirty-three alive From three hundred and sixty In September sixty-five The villagers rebuilt their lives With those who still remained The name of Eam can still be seen 
The plague had been contained The plague had been contained The villagers rebuilt their lives With those who still remained The name of him can still be seen The plague had been contained The plague had been contained Before we go to our last track, um be a good time to think back to John Peel and your memories of, of John. <laughs> I recall when we... um spoke for the first time probably a, a decade ago now. You you talked about going over to John's flat and there's some good stories of Mark Bolan and John Peel's record collection. Oh, yeah. And have you got some fond memories of, of John and, and what he was like that you'd be able to share? Yeah, he was a, I mean John was a very genuine guy. I mean it was a WYSIWYG thing. It was you know what you saw was what you got. He he really was a a, a nice, genuine, straightforward, self effacing man. When you got to meet him, invariably shy, he was in no way sort of over the top in in terms of his uh, of his personality. He was just quiet, quite studious, quite considered. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, I went. I remember the first time I went to his his. Uh, he had a, a a little muse muse flat or well, it's a house really, just off the Malibon Road in London, and I remember going in there and. Went in downstairs. Went up these these sta- the staircase, and I think I did, this probably is what I told you before. But there was a, a little chap just round behind as you went up the stairs. A little chap just sat behind, playing. Uh, it's like a, it was a sitar, but I didn't I didn't really know too much about it. I mean, just plonking away. This was Mark Bolden, but he was it was out of his it was out of his, um, out of his tree at the time. But I mean. It, Hmm. Nice enough chap, but he was very distant. He was a bit of a strange lad. Well, that's the impression I got. But what impressed me particularly when uh, when we were at, uh, at John's flat on that occasion, it was the first time I'd been there, he got rack loads of, of records on the wall, on shelves. I mean, I'd never seen, I had never seen so many records in my life. The shelves were, were literally sort of bowing down in the middle. The weight of the things, but what what particularly appealed me, appealed to me, I was, I was sort of going through the records as I could see them. He got several sort of on the topic label that Erin's uh, Green Shore and uh, the the McPeak family of Belfast, things that I'd got. It, it really, I just thought, oh yeah, 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 I, I like this. But the 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 the, um, the extent of his record collection, oh, it was it was absolutely phenomenal. And there was the time. There was the other time as well. I mentioned earlier on that we did the um, uh, we did the uh, the gig with Medicine Head and and Bridget in uh, in Amsterdam, and we were all staying at the at the Schiller uh, Hotel in in the middle of Amsterdam. And okay, we'd done the we'd done the gig at the Paradiso and all of that. Went back to uh, went back to uh, to the, the Schiller. And we were also just gathering around in John's room because he he got a load of food in. But this was in the days when there was macrobiotics, it was disgusting stuff. But we got all the, there's all this macrobiotic stuff brought in, so we we're all sort of eating this and just just listening to John's stories. That was where I heard for the first time. And I actually didn't believe it, but it it, it, it is absolutely true, and it's on film uh, that John was in the Dallas police headquarters the day that Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> Wow. It's on film. You can you can actually see it on the because he was working as John uh, John Parker Ravencroft. He was working as John Ravencroft 
in the States at the time. He was in Dallas and he was in the police headquarters. And uh, when Lee Harvey Oswald brought out Jack Ruby shot him and you can see the camera pan and there is Peter Larger's life and twice as natural. He told us that at the time in um, in the Schiller. I didn't believe it. And, but I said, believe it. It just seemed a little bit OTT. In fact, it's perfectly true. He was a lovely bloke. He really was a good bloke. Thanks to John and Clive. You're still here. You're still recording, still releasing records. Quite prolific over the last decade. And you have yeah. a new album coming out on Cherry Red. I do. I do. I do. And this is this is, <laughs> this is is called The Magic of Public Relations, which is a, a really... Um, it's an intriguing title. It's in- intended to be intriguing. I hope people, I hope people will enjoy it. As you so rightly say, if it wasn't for John, if it wasn't for Clive, going even further back, if it wasn't for Tom Paxton and for and for Leadbelly and for Jack Holtzman and people like that, I would, st- I'd still be writing and I would still be recording, but I wouldn't be in this very fortunate position of being able to get my my songs out to uh, to people who hopefully who hopefully enjoy them, but. Uh, yeah, I mean the the magic of public relations. Right now, we've there's a there's a video out now promoting it. One one little intriguing try, and I, I hope you like this. I mean, I hope anybody and everybody likes it. It's about organised crime. It's about illicit substances. It's about corruption, and it's from the new album. But this is this this is a song. If you can play it, it's called Louis El Chapo Chihuahua. Thanks so much for your time, Trevor. It's it's been brilliant to talk to you again. It's great to see how your career's threaded through the dandelion story, your memories of John Peel, Clive Selwood, of course. And um, just before we go, I assume you're working on a, a number of projects to come out over the next few years because you've got various um, different ideas always bubbling, bubbling away. Yeah, I mean, you, you, when you're a writer, you never stop. I mean, the interesting point, worth thinking about over the time between dandelion finishing 72 and well it was actually c for miles records that started re-releasing dandelion stuff in 1995 so about 24 years i wasn't doing anything i never i didn't release a single track publicly but all the time i was writing all the time i was recording amassing tape loads of stuff which frankly I still I still occasionally find things that I think I don't even remember doing that um, but you keep on going so I'm a writer I, I, I keep on writing I reflect the world around me as I see it and I do it whether or not I was releasing or not luckily I'm very fortunate I mean Cherry Red have been incredibly supportive I mean this this new album The Magic of Public Relations this is my 11th um, full length set for the Cherry Red label. Now, you know, that ain't bad because when you consider it, uh, as I think you're aware, I mean, Cherry Red are primarily a re-release label. Thank you very, very much, Ian McNay and all the guys at Cherry Red, but they, they still release me with, with new material. And that that is very, very gratifying. Brilliant. Uh, that, that's a, a lovely way to finish, uh, Trevor. Could I just could I could I just please I said look genuinely I'm I'm thank you ever so much for asking me to do this Jason we were intending to get together in a couple of days time personally obviously because of the coronavirus situation we can't so I'm so glad we've been able to do it this way but could I just say to everybody and anybody listening because this is going to go on for a long time stay safe stay safe stay safe. At 14 the rise Knew when the feeling was right 
It was, he said, mainly his sorrowful eyes And had fallen in love at first sight Fifteen months old and as cute as could be He'd started by calling him Stanley Doubtless believing between you and me It sounded convincingly manly Everyone missed it, Maguire had missed it And few folks would ever have guessed A malevolent streak that belied his physique Lay smouldering deep in the breast Of a Louis El Chapo Chihuahua No one in all Mington followed or prized the Chihuahuanian lingo. Certainly not, so Louis surmised a pliable gullible gringo. The minder he chose, undeniably dim, was a lumbering Rottweiler cross. Who answered to no one, nobody but him, the capo di tutti, the boss. Louis had needed a dogged enforcer It's perilous out on the streets Their ruthless cajoling cemented Controlling the market in all doggy treats All Louis El Chapo Chihuahua Night after night the packets were sealed And traffic across county lines Package discreetly, it can be revealed and placed where the sun never shines. Innocent puppies, their whole lives before them, besmirched in their first flush of youth. Sniffer squad Dobermans used to ignore them on purpose to tell you the truth. Corruption was rife around all Mington village, and Stanley, as Lewis was known, would cut and reuse inferior Jews was keeping the best for his own for Louis El Chapo Chihuahua The end unexpected was cruel and fast The Empire El Chapo surveyed Collapsed when the stool pigeon foolishly grasped And Louis was foully betrayed The house was surrounded at fourteen the rise and sacks full of doggy treats sealed. As proof then began to materialize, the extent of his crimes was revealed. When Stanley was taken in collar and cuffs and sentenced, they said to retrain. Those sorrowful eyes told a million lies. This evil will surface again from Louis El Chapo Chihuahua. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.